Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Kuris, and today on Raise the Line, we continue our focus on rare diseases with a member of the leadership team at Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. That's a nonprofit group that helps patients make their voices heard in the public policy arena. Our guest is Andy Kennedy, a veteran leader in the rare disease patient advocacy movement who joined Every Life in 2018 as chief of policy, advocacy, and patient engagement. In that time, she led the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study and the community-driven Guide to Patient Involvement in Rare Disease Therapy Development, among other initiatives. Annie previously held leadership roles at Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy and the Muscular Dystrophy Association. She's a sought-after advisor to patient-centered organizations and initiatives across the nonprofit and government sectors, and we're very pleased to have you with us today. Thanks so much. It's a delight to be here. So we always start with getting some personal professional background from our guests. What first got you interested in the healthcare space and, and muscular dystrophy in particular? So I have a couple personal connections to rare disease. I have uh, family members that have a form of muscular dystrophy. Um, I also started at a very young age as a volunteer at a summer camp program for kids with neuromuscular diseases. So from the age of 15, just started in the summertime, hanging out with uh, teenagers and young adults like myself as a volunteer, became very committed to seeing what was happening um, for people like myself and where the opportunities were and weren't as we were growing up together. Um, and then I also had um, a very close friend who was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer when we were in our early 20s. So I was, while I didn't have a term for it, I wouldn't have known that these were rare diseases. I was um, really affected very personally by the rare disease journey very early in my formative years. So with all that time in the muscular dystrophy space and uh, you know patient advocacy and all that, what are some big takeaways from that that you brought with you to Every Life? Yeah, I think so. I actually started um, my career in the neuromuscular space specifically, and then um, as you shared um, very generously in the description of my bio, um, worked in the muscular dystrophies and in ALS and spinal muscular atrophy or SMA. And as we in those spaces were navigating um, patient advocacy, I spent a lot of time working in the clinic space with families as they would be receiving their diagnoses and part of their diagnostic journeys. And then my favorite role ever that I spent many years doing, about a decade doing, was as a personal advocate to families. So I would go into schools and um, do presentations to classmates around what the child's diagnosis was. And I eventually directed that summer camp that I had volunteered at for so many years. Oh, wow. And what I saw was that there were real barriers to access. So after we had turned over every stone around benefit eligibility, or we were trying to get equipment needs met, or there had been prescriptions written for families, and we were trying to fill those prescriptions around equipment or therapy or leg braces, there were just some times that those couldn't be fulfilled and there would be out-of-pocket costs and requirements or families couldn't get access to the services they needed, whether it was physical therapy or speech therapy. 
And I really became infuriated and incensed by the injustice of that. And so that's really where my call to advocacy came from, was that we needed to fix that system, that these diagnostic odysseys shouldn't exist, that benefit eligibility shouldn't be standards, and that when a provider writes a prescription for a family because somebody needs that service, that benefit, that care, there should be a way to fulfill that. And no shouldn't be an acceptable answer. And so that's when I started to work in the advocacy space. And so I've worked in those advocacy spaces for a number of different disease-specific spaces. And as we were working on solutions within disease-specific spaces, I realized that what we needed within muscular dystrophy was not unique just to muscular dystrophy. And then what we needed within SMA was not unique just to SMA. And so the opportunity to work more broadly across the rare disease space and work on solutions that benefit all of our rare diseases was one that um, I just couldn't afford to pass up and to work with all of our partners on solutions that benefit all of us collectively. Well, that all makes sense. So give us the kind of big picture view of every life and where it fits in in this, this community. Sure. So we are a rare disease policy organization. Um, we have the privilege to be a coalition of organizations. So we work with our rare disease partners who are patient advocacy organizations, who are biopharmaceutical industry partners, who are other coalitions, who are academics and researchers, who are who share our priority around identifying where the policy opportunities and challenges are. So many who have this similar lived experiences that I do. And we align around three key policy areas. The first is around eliminating the diagnostic odyssey in rare disease. The second is really focused on ensuring that those with rare diseases have approved therapies. And so we focus on policies that will create infrastructure for therapy development and resources for therapy development. And then the last is very importantly that once there are approved therapies, we believe that patients should have access to those approved therapies. And so our third policy area is to work on that access environment for patients with rare diseases. When you're out speaking with policymakers and whatnot, are, are they surprised at how long it takes for these folks to get a diagnosis? Well, I think policymakers share our focus on solving for the problems of rare disease. So I think many of the, so if you're talking about Capitol Hill, maybe we'll make distinctions and members of Congress, which this is a really exciting time, actually, because we have so many new members of Congress who just moved into their offices on Capitol Hill, sort of like that freshman energy you have when you move into college and everyone's sort of figuring out where the bathrooms are and unpacking <laughs> their dorm rooms. Right. Um, so we have a lot of new potential. I like to think of it as a lot of new potential partners, right? A lot of new members who are figuring out what their priorities are going to be, what they're going to sort of put their flag in the ground around. And so we're really excited in the rare disease community to build a lot of new champions. And so I think your question is a really good one when you talk about those are individuals who are very surprised when you're meeting with members of Congress and elected officials and you talk about who our rare disease community is. And the fact of the matter is rare disease actually isn't that rare. And so while individually we might be representing diseases that impact only 500 people or 5,000 people, collectively there are more than 30 million Americans living with rare diseases. So this is a real public health priority and a public health issue. And so when you talk to members of Congress around that, and then you talk to your point around 
how many years it takes to develop just one therapy, which is on average more than 15 years, and how expensive it is to develop just one therapy, which can be trillions of dollars, you'd really grab people's attention. Now, when you think about the collective policymakers, those at NIH and those at FDA and those at CDC, we find that those folks are leaning in with us to solve for the problems. They understand the hurdles, but what they need are resources and there's so little funding in rare disease. So that's where we come in. Our role is to really look to increase their resources so that they can partner on the solutions with us. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that one of the approaches you take is to sort of empower the patient community to uh, and give them a voice in the public arena. How do you go about doing that? Yeah. So one of the things, um, and I'm careful about this, is we, the words we choose, and I, I know you are careful about this too, we don't feel like we give anybody a voice. Patients are the voice, right? And um, one of my colleagues often says, it's not that we make room at the table or get a seat at the table, it's our table as the patient community. So at Every Life, what we really work to do is embolden the voice of patients to make sure patients are empowered if that advocacy is something that's new to them, to realize how they can utilize their journey and their story and connect it to whatever problem it is they're trying to solve for. So our um, rare disease community is looking to solve many different types of policy barriers because we have a very diverse patient community that we're representing. And those 10,000 rare diseases that we represent impact people very differently. And so what we look to do is create tools and resources that whether or not what you're solving for is a barrier to a piece of equipment and reimbursement for that equipment or barrier to diagnostics or barrier to uh, reimbursement for medical nutrition, because that's what you depend on for life, that we are providing tools and resources to help you either write that legislation or access your elected officials um, or even provide resources to the patient community that you serve that you can explain what the legislative process is to empower the community that you work with. So we provide lots of different tools and resources so that communities can pull them down and better serve their own communities as well. Yeah, because it is, I mean, obviously it's a kind of new territory for folks to sit down with an elected official or something like that or a pharmaceutical company. So that's great. So um, I also mentioned at the top that you were uh, involved in this uh, national economic burden of rare disease study. What are your, some main takeaways from that? Yeah, that was a really important um, endeavor for us. One of the reasons being that when you're an individual living with a rare disease or you have a family member who is, I think there are just a lot of things you understand about rare disease that you never actually see quantified or talked about in the public domain. And what we really wanted to do was take the lived experience of rare disease and transform it into quantifiable data. And so, as we know, you know, here in Washington, which is where we're based, we hear so much discussion around um, how policy is driven by evidence. And there are so many discussions around um, basing what goes onto your formulary or how decisions are made about reimbursement are based on your numbers, but as you know, what you see are the numbers on your explanation of benefits or the direct costs involved in your care. 
But when an individual is diagnosed with a rare disease, we know that that's just a piece of the pie. And what we really wanted to do was try and capture the full amount that it costs to live with a rare disease. What are the costs that are represented in the direct costs, represented in the physician's visits and the hospital visits and the diagnosis and durable medical equipment, if that's being paid for, but also what are the costs involved with losing time from work because you're going to medical appointments or because you've left the workplace because you have a child who has a diagnosis or a spouse who you're caring for or because you travel great distances to go to your specialist and that travel is not reimbursed. We wanted to capture all of that and quantify that because that costs a lot of money. For a lot of our family members, they have to make modifications to their homes and vehicles because they may have a loved one that uses a wheelchair. And in order to make your home accessible, those are out-of-pocket costs to do all of that. So what we did is we actually conducted a study that included all of that so that we could get a real look at what is the impact of rare disease in the U.S. so that we could finally have some real policy conversations, not just about those direct costs, about the physician's visits, but about the whole picture. So we could, I like to talk about it as we sort of looked beyond the tip of the iceberg and looked beneath the surface. And what we found is was really validating to our patient community. What we found was that the direct costs, those physician visits, those hard medical costs, were only 40% of the overall cost. So that the 60%, the larger piece of that pie, that portion, the under the surface, if you will, that um, iceberg, were costs that are shouldered directly by families and society. And that's where we need to start having the discussion from because we can shift those costs we can reduce those costs we can work on better policies that better support americans and community members who are living with rare diseases so that we can better serve our communities help people who um, are looking for reimbursement for things that are currently being paid for out of pocket so what's an example of a, a solution that could help with that yeah, that's a super question. So one of the things that we've been really looking for is there are a lot of communities, and I gave some of them already, who require um, dental procedures because of their diagnosis. And many of those dental procedures are not paid for and reimbursed. Those are medical procedures, but those dental surgeries are not paid for. We have other communities who have diseases that require medical nutrition, um, so su food supplements to keep them alive. And those supplements can cost two to $10,000 a month. Man. And those are out-of-pocket costs mm. that families have to pay for to keep their children alive. So those are just some examples that are out-of-pocket costs for families. And some of those conditions are actually screened for as a public health program. So we've acknowledged, Secretary of Health and Human Services has acknowledged that these are serious, life-threatening conditions that we have to screen for. We tell families when their baby's born that we have a treatment but then we don't pay for the treatment as a society. So we've been able to really raise the flag on this and now start to have real conversations around what these costs are, which again, this is our evidence-based approach to policy, that until we have the data, we can't start to solve for these issues. Well, we've been talking about policy changes and we've already mentioned uh, the new energy on Capitol Hill that you're hoping to tap into. And uh, at the end of the month, you have Rare Disease Week on Capitol Hill. Do. So Tell us what you're planning for that and, and how folks can get involved. 
Yeah, so this is one of my um, favorite weeks of the year. Um, sadly, for the last couple of years, we've done it virtually, which actually has been pretty powerful. But we're back in person. Um, so Rare Disease Day is the last day of February every year because it's a rare day, especially every four years, we have Leap Day. And so around that day, we convene what we call Rare Disease Week. And it's an opportunity for members of the rare disease community to come to Washington and meet with their elected officials and talk about the priorities of the rare disease community and legislative solutions to those priorities and really just build champions. We're also very grateful that we have a Congressional Rare Disease Caucus here in the US. And so, especially since we have so many new members of Congress, it's an opportunity for the rare disease community members who are meeting with their elected officials to introduce them to what rare disease is and invite them to join the caucus and become champions for our community. Um, we're also really grateful that we partner with some of our federal agencies. So the National Institutes of Health and the Food and Drug Administration also host events around Rare Disease Week. And we also then have um, a documentary screening that really highlights, there's a documentary that'll highlight some themes that are important to our community. And we have a rare artist event. So we have members of the rare disease community who are phenomenal artists who will be showcasing their work on Capitol Hill. So we just have a lot of really wonderful events that highlight the strengths of our rare disease community, especially when we collectively come together and um, raise the profile of the power of this community. And where can people go to find out more? They can go to um, everylifefoundation.org, and we have lots of really wonderful information for them um, to learn about rare disease week. Great. We'll make sure that's in the show notes as well. So it's the 40th anniversary of the Orphan Drug Act this year. And uh, for folks who remember President Reagan, it goes back all the way to him. <laughs> it's time to sort of assess, I think, where things are at with the rare disease community. We have had a lot of guests on talking about all the promise uh, on the science side of things and drug development. There's been so many advances in gene technology. We seem to be on the cusp of really some breakthroughs. Yeah. But I also want to hear, you know, from a broader perspective, where you see the rare disease space and, and what kind of progress you're expecting uh, down the road. Yeah. So just for some context around what the Orphan Drug Act, or we call it the ODA, did for rare diseases is it took a field that really was dry and had no incentives for rare disease and was very difficult for companies to work within our space and created some really important incentives for um, companies to work within our space. And it has created a very um, fruitful environment for um, companies to work within the rare disease space. Alongside the ODA, there have been some really other important pieces of legislation. I'm sure you've been following what's happened recently with the user fee agreements, which have created some other infrastructure that runs alongside the ODA that also helps de-risk the space for companies to work within the space and very importantly has created a centralized role for patient experience data to be brought to bear on therapeutic development so that um, the patient community and collaborations between industry and patient groups and regulators are not just nice-to-haves, but are actually requirements of therapeutic development in rare disease. And so we've really gone from the space where there was almost no development in rare disease to now we have um, almost 600 approved therapies in rare diseases, which while we have 10,000 rare diseases, 600 is not nearly where we need to be for those communities. It is 
significant progress. We have patients who are alive today because of the ODA who previously had diseases that we not only couldn't diagnose and detect, we certainly couldn't treat. So we've made great strides. But the other thing to your question is we have very robust pipelines. We have incredibly promising clinical trials underway, and we now have a regulatory infrastructure that is swifter, is robust, has incredibly important regulatory rigor, um, and that we're incredibly excited about, and that is serving um, the majority of rare diseases. What we lean into, though, and we look ahead to, is that the smaller populations, what are sometimes referred to as ultra-rare diseases, the smaller communities, still don't have a lot of work happening within them. So one of the things we're really concerned about is making sure that we think about what are some additional incentives that we can make sure that those rarer rare diseases also have development happening within them, that those communities continue to be served. The other thing that we're really looking at and spending a lot of time working on is making sure that as we have these therapies being developed, um, that we have a fruitful access environment so that when a therapies are approved, that we have very swift access to the, those approved products for the families who've been waiting for those products, and that we don't have a separate adjudication process that then occurs within the access environment, um, and that we don't have, if you will, separate clinical trials that then are conducted within CMS, and the patients don't have to wait a very long time for access to those life-saving therapies that they've been waiting for. So we have a lot that we're leaning into um, as we think about what's next um, as we celebrate the 40th anniversary of the ODA, but we're a lot that we're extremely grateful for um, as we really celebrate this moment and make sure that it wasn't just a moment, but we um, follow on the momentum. That's well put. So Osmosis is a teaching company, and uh, we love to ask our guests basically to give us some direction about, you know, filling a knowledge gap or busting a myth. Um, could be on what we're talking about, but you also might have, you know, a strong interest in something else. So if you were to say, so Osmosis, make an educational video about X, what would that be? I think I would say two things to that, that end. One is, I think um, one of the things that has changed in the time I've been in this space, and I, I know everyone listening can't tell how young I am, but you know, I started <laughs> in the sandbox, so it's been a few years. Um, I think rare diseases are complex, and they they certainly are rare. <laughs> I mean, well, there are a lot of them. It's very often that if you're going to medical school or you're in your clinical training, whether it's a PA program, genetic counseling program, you might have a question on the boards about one of the diseases. I don't know, but you're probably not going to get training in all of the rare diseases. And I think there are probably times when medical professionals feel the pressure to be the most expert person in the room at all times. And I think one of the things that we've learned in the rare disease community is that because of the lived experience of rare disease, because of um, the nuance of rare disease, that patients themselves develop really extraordinary expertise around their diagnosis and their disease. And that really is also the essence of the patient-focused drug development movement, that patients are collecting data on social media and in real time are building natural history studies that are being used as comparators in regulatory decision making. And that what we've seen within the clinical space, to your question, is that where that really works best is when providers partner with patients. 
and pull together the knowledge base that a provider has and pairs it with the lived experience that a patient has and that they really work together to pair what's what's happening in your daily life what are you experiencing with the knowledge that the provider comes to the table with but patients really work hard to sort of quarterback their medical team have to often in multi-systemic disorders pull together a team and when providers can really be open to being a part of that team understanding that patients come with a really incredible amount of knowledge and learning something new um, we see patients thrive when providers have a really hard time with either a disease that they haven't learned a lot about or the fact that we're always learning new information about these diseases, we see patients really suffer because of that and oftentimes have to go seek care elsewhere. So I think that would be one of the things that I would say. The other is that because of the medical information that you put out and provide, one of the needs, one of the gaps we see is a real need for helping providers navigate difficult conversations and especially in the case of delivering a diagnosis and that's a really that's hard information to give somebody and i as i said at the beginning of this call i spent a lot of years in the clinical space and would often be a part of diagnostic conferences where you would have an expert provider a neurologist often or a physical medicine provider with a genetic counselor and a family who was receiving really tough diagnosis and we recognized that not everybody gives certain diagnoses a hundred times. And I think providing a resource or a tool that would really help people with some language that would make that first conversation easier um, would be a real gift to providers. Because the truth is that families are then gonna go from that meeting and hit Google anyway, and are gonna go start looking information up, right? So the best thing that I think a provider can do in that conversation is provide some context through which they're going to view everything else they're gonna start learning. And so if the provider can sort of take some of the sting out of that moment, provide them with a little bit of a safety net and just get two or three facts across that will help them interpret everything else they're gonna start reading online, um, they've, they've achieved a lot in that conversation and also reminded them that they're a part of a team and not alone, and there's going to be a resource to return to. But I think that conversation can be really scary for providers. And so I haven't seen a lot of resources provided to providers about how to navigate that conversation. What do you say? And it could be applied to so many different disease spaces, but how do you even do it? That is really an awesome idea. Um, we've done uh, 350 interviews in this series, not all about rare diseases, but that's that's an excellent, excellent point. You know. Um, most people aren't naturally going to be able to figure out how to phrase right. it and, and sort of how to approach and frame that moment. But everybody's doing it, right? Everyone's yeah. going to have to do it. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's great. So uh, to wrap up, we always like to have our guests uh, provide some advice to the learners in our audience, uh, medical students, nursing students, and so forth, and also a lot of early career professionals about approaching their career in healthcare. Very provide them with a lot of great stuff to think about, but is there anything else you want to leave them with? I, I would just start with a thank you. I just think that um, this is not an easy time. I mean, obviously we've just come out of such a difficult time as we sort of navigated through the pandemic. And 
I don't know that we're ever coming out of the pandemic. And we learned that our essential employees um, were superheroes and really should still stroll around the streets with tights and capes on. Um, but I also have a lot of personal friends and loved ones who are healthcare providers who are always taking calls and emails from their patients and go in, you obviously go into this profession because you care about your patients. And we're in a time and space where everything is always changing. So what you learned in medical school and then you learned in your fellowship and you learned in your training is certainly not what you're encountering when you're meeting that patient that has the diagnosis that you thought you knew. And I just want to say thank you to providers who make such an impact on um, not just the lived experience of patients, but on the way patients are going to, as I was saying before, view their diagnosis and their approach to their daily life and their disease. And while there are lots of tools and resources out there, which is so empowering for us as patients to be able to piece together our teams and our resources. At the end of the day, it's providers that help point us in the right direction. So I just want to say thank you. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. I want to thank you so much for being with us today and sharing all of that wisdom. I know our audience learned a lot and uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us and for featuring the Every Life Foundation and our rare disease community. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.